Psalms chapter 145. You're also going to need a hymnal again this morning. And you can open your hymnal to hymn number 10. If you weren't with us the last couple weeks, we started a series a couple weeks ago uh, looking at the theology of some of the old, uh, older hymns um, that are found in our hymn book and uh, why they're still good uh, to be used in, in the life of the church. They are chock full of theology, all of them. Um, and there's, there's so many great hymns out there. Um, I, it never ceased to amaze me when I became a, a worship pastor, uh, before I became a, a past senior pastor, that growing up in the life of the church, and I kind of grew up in that um, where the chorus debate began to start and whether or not you should sing everything straight out of the hymnal or add some choruses uh, to the worship service. Um, and, and, and our church did quite a few choruses. Um, but, but I grew up listening to, to the hymns. Well, I thought I knew most of the hymns. I really did. And, until you sit back and you really think about the fact that there's over 600 of them in our hymnal alone, okay? Um, and then I met my wife. And when I met Jenna, her dad has been a music minister for 40-plus um, years now. And when we would go down there, it was inevitable that he would sing a lot of the hymns I knew, but there would always seem to be one that I'd never heard before. And they were great. They were so rich. And so I made a, a, a thing that I tried to do early in my music ministry days was every now and then, every maybe once a month, I would try to introduce a new hymn uh, to our congregation. And some of them, you know, the people liked, and, and, and some of them um, took off. And what I mean by took off was they started getting requested back when you would have Fifth Sunday Night uh, Sings, when you would do Favorite Hymn Night or something. Uh, these songs that they'd never heard before but had all of a sudden been hearing, they started getting requested. And the thing about hymns is, um, they again, they're so full of theology and, and there's nothing wrong with the new songs of today, and I've talked about that. The scriptures tell us that, that there is a time to sing a new song to the Lord. However, we shouldn't push aside songs that we know are glorifying God and teaching us biblical truth. And, and so that's kind of been the whole purpose of this, is maybe to reexamine how deep some of these uh, hymns that we sing really are and what they really do for us um, and maybe if you're a young person, you've never really heard these hymns. Maybe it would encourage you to understand that these aren't antiquated. These truths are timeless. But maybe also for our older generation who has grew up and these are the hymns they've always known, maybe to be reminded of what they actually say instead of just singing the words. Now, I'm guilty of that. There are a lot of hymns out there that I love and I sing, and every now and then I'll go, what does that mean? Like, here I raise my Ebenezer. What's an Ebenezer? I'd sang that my whole life. And then finally I was like, I had to figure out what that is. I mean, sometimes we, we get so used to a song, we like it, but we forget what the words mean and what they say. So maybe it'll be encouragement uh, to all of us. So this morning, we're going to look at, uh, at hymn number 10 in just a minute called How Great Thou Art. And, uh, you know, in our culture today, there are a lot of different reasons why people sing. 
Uh, we, we sing in our culture um, because we're happy sometimes. Sometimes we sing because we're joyful, um, we're excited, uh, maybe um, out of love. I mean, it doesn't, you turn the radio on and you're going to hear a love song, okay? Um, so maybe it's love or maybe it's sadness or mourning, uh, maybe heartbreak uh, for a loss or despair. Um, this morning, um, Nidra and and Sharon and Jenna played um, for the offering, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, which I've always found it interesting that it made its way into our hymnal back in the God and Country section. But if you read the lyrics, it's all about God's army marching. It's, I may preach that one. It's so full of what we ought to be doing as believers and what God has done for us. It's a great, it uh, doesn't have really anything to do with our country in particular. Um, but we, we, we see these, and, and so what I'm saying is sometimes we sing because of patriotism. Some, sometimes we, we sing. Every Friday night before a football game, they play the national anthem, okay? Or someone sings the national anthem out of patriotism. So we, we see each of these different reasons through the lyrics of many of the songs that are on the radio today. We see songs ranging from uh, love songs to breakup songs. We see songs ranging from uh, happy hearts to broken hearts. We see songs that range from feeling love and accepted uh, to feeling alone and abandoned. And so we see all different kinds of songs in our culture today that are saying for a variety of reasons, a lot of different reasons. But, but the question I ask myself sometimes is why do we sing as Christians? As a believer in Christ, why do we sing? Because we know from Scripture that music has always had a priority in God's economy. And matter of fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis where we find the father of music back in Genesis. I believe it's chapter 6. Don't ask me his name because I done forgot it. But it's back in Genesis chapter, maybe it's chapter 3. Anyway, there's the father of all music back in Genesis 3. And then you'll find it all the way through the book of Revelation and into the eternal reign of Christ that's going to happen in the new heavens and new earth. We find music there. So music has always had a, a very uh, big part in God's economy and got what God's doing and what he expects. But, but why do we as Christians sing? Why do we gather this morning and, and lift up our voice in praise through the music that we just sang? Not just the hymn we're going to look at this morning, but the other songs that we just Finish singing. Why do we do that as Christians? This morning, the hymn that we're going to look at not only serves really as the theme of our current series, Then Sings My Soul, but it also examines some of the reasons why a believer should sing. As a matter of fact, I would say it examines the reasons why when a, when a church understands this or when an individual understands these truths, they can't help but sing. That's what it really examines. Not just why we sing, here's the reasons, but you can't help but sing because of these things. And so we're going to look at this hymn this morning. It, it is this hymn, uh, How Great Thou Art. You, we would think, some people would think that it's older than it, it really is. It, it's really only been around for about 130 years. And in its current form, the way we sing it, the way just about every church in America sings it, has only been around for about 70 years. Yet, it has been consistently ranked the number two most favorite hymn in all of America. Can anybody guess what the number one would be? Amazing Grace. Yeah. It's always just right behind Amazing Grace. Yet, it's really only been around for 50 years. 
really. I mean, 70 years total, and it really gained popularity, and for the last 50 years has become as popular as it has. Well, why is it so popular, and why has it done so much? And I believe it's because of what it teaches us and what it leads the singer to understand and know about God. And it's based, if you look in your notes, I put that it's based on Isaiah chapter 45. It, it is, it, it, when I was studying the history of this song, the author um, the, the first author of this, because we're going to learn this in just a minute about this song. It actually has two authors to it. The first one was inspired by Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18 and 22. But the second author was uh, in, 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 inspired by Psalms chapter 145. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to read this morning in Psalm chapter 145. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning in Psalms chapter 145. We're going to start in verse 3. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wondrous works, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness and they shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Let's pray. God, today I pray that you'd bless the reading of your word. And now as we begin to examine it and go through this uh, text and, and also this great hymn that's been written, I pray that you would speak to us the truths that are contained within them. Uh, that we would not only see them, but we would understand them. And, and Father, they would truly lead us to do as the author of this hymn would write, um, that they would truly lead us to sing with all of our soul how great you really are. That, Father, that when we truly grasp these truths, our only real response should be praise. And, and I pray that you ingrain those in us today. And they change our worlds, they change our hearts and our minds for your glory and for your honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing we're going to look at about this hymn, and like we did last week, is I want to tell you a little bit about its origin and its history. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it really has an interesting history. There was a Swedish minister in 1885. He was 26-year-old, and his name was Carl Boberg, and he was walking home from church one Sunday morning in the afternoon, and he lived in Sweden up in the mountains, and he's walking home uh, from the church, and he hears the bells from another church playing as he's walking home. And then suddenly something caught his eye, and he looked, and upon the horizon, he saw a thunderstorm beginning to brew up and, and to, to start, and, and he sees flashes of lightning come across the horizon. He sees these booming claps of thunder. Uh, these strong winds begin to sweep across the, 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 the meadows and the fields of grain, uh, and on and on this was going, and then all of a sudden this rain Rain began to fall, bringing a cool, fresh shower. Uh, but after just a few moments, 
It just all subsided, and he sees a rainbow. And he continues on his way home, and he makes it to his house. He lived on the bay, and he gets home into his home, and he, he opens his bedroom window, and he looks out at the bay after this storm, and all he sees is like a mirror, like a glass. The, the bay was just as calm and just no waves, nothing, just real calm and real peaceful. And as he looked upon that, he was, began to hear another church across the bay. Their bells began to play. And it was through those things that he saw that afternoon that inspired him to immediately, after opening his window, seeing the bay, hearing the bells, he took out a pen and a paper, and he wrote a poem. And the poem translated into English would be, Almighty oh God. So he wrote this poem, and it was published, and then, in, in his thinking, forgotten. But several years later, and I mean about ten years later, he was asked to come visit another church, and he went there to preach, and they were singing a song that caught his attention. And someone had taken the words to his poem and applied it to the melody, medley of a popular Swedish folk song, and they were singing it in that congregation. And so that, from there, it began to spread, and it actually eventually made its way all the way into Russia. And while it's being sang in Russia, a, an English missionary named Stuart Hine, okay, he was over there, and he heard it, and he was so moved by this poem that had been Put to words, by the way, the poem is verses 1 and 2 of our hymn. He was so moved by it that it inspired him to create his own version in which he added the third and fourth verse to this hymn. And he retitled it from Almighty God to How Great Thou Art. And that song made its way all the way through Russia and eventually into India where a English professor, or an American professor from, uh, he was from Fuller Theological Seminary in California, was on a mission trip, and he goes into this, this village in India, and he hears this song being sang uh, that this Hind guy had adapted and called How Great Thou Art, and he was so moved by it, he brought it back to America and sang it at a conference. And he sang it at a conference in 19, it was about 1954. And it didn't gain any recognition whatsoever, but that was the first time it was sang in America. It was in 1954. A few years later, it, it somehow made its way into a pamphlet for a Billy Graham crusade. Now, if you remember the Billy Graham crusades from the 50s, they always had a songbook. And one of the primary lead singers for the Billy Graham Crusades was a guy by the name uh, uh, Bev Shea, or George Beverly Shea. And this song made its way into a, a, one of the pamphlet books for the Billy Graham Crusade. It wasn't used. It was just in there. And then all of a sudden, in 1957, at a crusade in New York, George Beverly Shea sang the song, How Great Thou Art. And from that point... Until today, it just exploded. As a matter of fact, later that year, um, no, sorry, the next year, that was 1956. In 1957, it became the theme song 
for the entire year of Billy Graham Crusades, and George Beverly Shea sang that song alone over 100 times at the Billy Graham Crusades. As a matter of fact, George Beverly Shea said, I tried to stop singing it, and the people wouldn't let me. And from that point until today, it's made its way into every modern hymn book for every denomination in America since that day and has risen to be consistently the second most popular hymn in all of America behind only Amazing Grace. And so this song has a, a very rich history and origin. And I just keep thinking back to that, that original Carl Bover, that 26-year-old Swedish minister from a town no one can pronounce. Trust me, I wrote it down. It's in my notes, and I'm not trying to say it. And he penned this. Do you think in his mind he ever thought that it would become the first and second verses of one of the most popular hymns in the world? No, I don't think he thought that at all. But it's amazing what God does under the inspiration of the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. That's why so many of these songs are so great. Because so many of the songs in our hymn book are written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the same way a sermon is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I had someone tell me one time that if a sermon is written and preached under, in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is never out of date. I, I agree. So don't get upset when I re-preach a sermon from time to time. No, I'm just kidding. I agree. If, matter of fact, I got Lone Grove when I first became a pastor. said if it was good for us then, it's good for us now. That's the way he would say it. And you get to thinking, these men who pray and are under the inspiration of the Spirit, when they pin these words, that's, they're timeless. Because they're not there in their own thinking. It's God moving within them and inspiring, to write, inspiring them to write down these words. And then all of a sudden they get set to music. And then they begin to be sung by the churches. And then people begin to learn these rich theological truths that are contained within it. And so it's an amazing hymn. Uh, in our hymn book that has a rich history. But what is the theological emphasis of this? And this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my time uh, this morning. I was looking at what it says because not only do, if you, if you read these words, which we're going to read the verses in just a moment, when you read them, it doesn't just tell us why we sing as Christians. It, it basically tells us that, the, the, that when these things are truly understood, we can't help but sing. We can't help but respond in praise. When we understand these truths. So what are there? There are three specific theological truths found in How Great Thou Art that are found in Scripture as well that I want us to look at this morning. The first theological truth that is talked about is God's grandeur. And that's found in verses 1 and 2. Now, grandeur is not a word that we use very often. We, we, it's in some of our hymns, but we don't use the word very often. But grandeur simply means the quality or state of being grand. It is to be magnificent, majestic, glorious, noble, superb, etc. It is, it is the quality or state of being grand. And so the, the first verse here and the second verse are talking about the grandness or the magnificence, uh, the superbness of God. And specifically, it talks about how this is seen through his creation. Look at the words of verses 1 and 2 of How Great Thou Art. He says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works. Now, the original words was works. Our hymn says worlds. But all the works thy hands have made. 
I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. So the first verse, he, he, he hears the thunder, remember the storm that he had seen, and then he, it makes him think about all of the universe that he sees, everything within it, how it, when he looks at that, he, he can't help, but he's not going to be able to help but praise. But look at the second verse, because it kind of capitalizes on that. He says, And when through the woods and forest glades I wonder, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Okay, and so all of these qualities that he's talking about in verses 1 and 2, are they emphasize the grandeur of God that is seen in his creation. Uh, the, the, you can see the grandness of God by looking at the stars. You can see the grandness of God when you hear the thunder and you, the grandness of God, the greatness of God when you think about the universe. Brother Chuck talked about the universe this morning uh, or our galaxy this morning. He was like, uh, how long would it take us if we, a little over 100,000 years or right at it, something like that, if we could travel at the speed of light? And here it was spoken into existence by God. Like, we, we would never be able to travel all of it, even going as fast as the speed of light, and, and God spoke it into existence. So you can see the grandness of God in his creation, and then the second verse, through the woods and the forest and the birds singing and the mountain views and the sound of the brook and, and the gentle breeze that's going, you see the greatness of God. I'm telling you right now, if you ever get stressed out and your spiritual uh, lives are waning and wanting and you just feel dry, I want you to know one of the best things you can do is go get out in nature alone. Leave your cell phone at home. Leave your computer or tablet at home. Take your Bible and go sit out in nature and I, it, it, it will calm your soul. Nature is the one of the evidences of God's powerfulness. Matter of fact, nature is one of the reasons why man will never be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. That's what Paul says. Because the invisible qualities of God are made known to us through all that he created. It shouts for a creator. Like if we go into a swamp and we pick up a rock, it belongs there right? But if you go into a swamp and you pick up a watch, it, it doesn't belong there. It, it, it's, there's creation behind it. And when you go out in nature, you see living things, things that are alive, flowers that are blooming, trees that are growing. You, you see the, the, the liveness, if that's a word, of of creation that God created. And so he's saying that here you see the greatness of God in all these things. So what does that lead the singer to understand? Well, it leads the singer to understand that God's grandeur is evident in his creation and that truly seeing it and understanding it can only lead to one thing. Well, what's that one thing? Look at the chorus. So after I see all this stuff, I stars, the thunder, the universe, the woods, forest, birds singing, mountain views, sound of the brook and breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. That if we truly understood the power of God that is made known to us through his creation, 
our only response should be praise. How could we not praise God? When I was uh, 16, and no, this is not the story, so some of the youth may start to laugh. It's not the story you think. But when I was 16, I was in uh, the mountains on a ski trip. And we were up on a ski lift, and I remember we were at Winter Park, Colorado, beautiful place, lots of snow. And we had made our way around to this backside of the mountain, and there was nobody back there. That's the great thing about Winter Park. It's so big. <laughs> we made our way around to the backside. I didn't even know it was there until the second day, and there's nobody back. And we're going up and down, and we make our way up to this, top, this real high lift, and as we're about to dismount, I kind of look around, and you just see the mountains and the trees and the snow, and it's beautiful. And all I could think of was the God that created all of that created me and then sent his son to die for me because I messed all of that up in my sin. And all I wanted to do was sing. When you experience the power of God, the response is praise. Well, let's look at the second theological truth, not just God's grandeur, but also the second theological truth is God's gracious gift. Now, the, set, the third and fourth verse were written by the, the Hines, the guy, the English missionary. And both of these verses that he wrote were written based off some experiences that he had. Um, this particular verse, verse 3, was written by Mr. Hines when he came to a village in the Ukraine. And he was in the Ukraine where a Christian lady was reading the gospel of John in her home. And as they were walking up to this home where this, this Christian lady lived, she, he was with her husband. And her husband and her were the only Christians in this village. And he came to them. The husband went to meet him. And they were coming back to the home. And this Christian lady was in her home reading from the gospel of John. And as she was reading and explaining from the Gospel of John, God's great love for man and what he did through the precious gift of Jesus, they had to wait outside because they said it was evident that the Spirit of God was moving and the women that were in the home were in the process of repenting. And in that culture, that was the, which is very common in Ukraine, I actually have a friend that's been over there several times that says the same thing. They, their response when they see something great is in song. And when they begin to understand what God did for them, his great love for them, the gift that he gave in Jesus, he began to hear words being sang by these women who were in the process of, repeat, of repenting. And he, those words that he heard form this particular verse. So with that in mind, listen, listen to what verse Three says He says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. And matter of fact, he says, I scarce can take it in is a direct quote of one of the things he heard from one of the ladies. That when she heard from the Gospel of John that God loved her, sent Jesus to die for, for her sins, and has provided a way for her to be saved, her song of repentance, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, 
He bled and died to take away my sin. That theological truth is focused on God's gracious gift of Jesus. It emphasizes that the gift of, Je the gift of God is found in Jesus and how grasping that one can scarce take it in. I fear that, and, and for my own life, because I grew up in church, I fear that sometimes I, quote, get over what God did for me in Jesus. What I mean is, I get used to it. I, I, I hear it so often, especially as a preacher, I preach on it every week, that it begins to kind of, for the lack of a better word, church, and don't think less of me, it just seems to kind of get dull. And there's no way it can be dull. I mean, that's what they're saying. When you sit and think about what Jesus did for you, okay, what did he do? He came, he lived a perfect life of obedience to God because you couldn't. Then he willingly gave up his life to be sacrificed for you. But he didn't do that in an, uh, in an easy way. He did it in the cruelest and most harsh of ways that was fathomable in that day. And, and the Bible describes his gift of what he gave in his life as torment. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was forced to carry his own cross until he couldn't carry it anymore, and then someone was dragged and said, you carry it the rest of the way, and they, they took him to a place called Calvary, and they laid him down on a cross, and then they didn't just hang him to the cross, they nailed him to the cross and raised him up to, to be sacrificed, and all along having a crown of thorns still pressed down on his head. If we can get over that, there's something wrong in our faith that there really is and, and that's what this song that's what this verse is reminding us when, when you consider all that jesus did for you and the fact that he didn't have to he chose to because of god's amazing love for you i scarce can take that in and, and what's the response the chorus then sings my soul my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. So the third theological truth that it really leads us to understand, if we truly grasp it, our really only response would be praise, is for God's gracious gift. And then the third one, the last one, is found in verse 4, and it's the, the response from recognizing God's promised imminent return of Christ. Look, listen to verse 4. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Now, before I say anything else, go back up in that last where it says, then I shall bow. The original text was, then we shall bow. We. 
Now, there's a reason why I point that out. I told you that the third and fourth verse are both come from the inspiration of some events that Dr. Hine went through. The first one was the Christian lady in the Ukraine. The fourth verse came from a story that, um, that he shared with, with, with people in the history of his song from meeting a young Russian male that had been displaced after World War II. After World War II, many of the Russian people who had been displaced, they were often separated from their families. They had been taken to prisons. They had been shipped here, shipped there, and there, there was a lot of uh, chaos because of the things that happened in Russia during World War II. And this particular Russian male, when he, he was married and his wife was a believer, she was a Christian, but he was not. And they got separated, and he had been sent somewhere over into Europe. And that's where Dr. Hine met him. And he shared his story with him, how he had been displaced. And when they were displaced, when they were separated, his wife was a believer, but he was not. But he had since been converted. And his greatest desire was to be reunited with his wife so they could celebrate together the gift of salvation. But he didn't think that was ever going to happen. He, he told Dr. Hine, I do not believe this side of heaven, my wife and I will ever be together again. But I'm thankful that one day we will be together again to celebrate the salvation that we both have in heaven. And that story led Dr. Hine to, to write this fourth verse. That's why it's important that we see we instead of I. Now look at it. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart, then we shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim my God how great thou art. This verse teaches us and emphasizes two great truths about God's re the return of Christ. Number one, Jesus' return is sure, and it will be a joyous sight to a believer. Sometimes I think we feel like we've been forgotten here. Like, God, where are you? <laughs> You should have been back already. Like Everything that needed to happen before you came back has been fulfilled. So what are you waiting for? Now, Scripture tells us exactly what he's waiting for. Matter of fact, the, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 very clearly what he's waiting for. It is the fact that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Therefore, he is being patient. That's why he hadn't returned yet. He's being patient to give time for more people uh, to be saved. But, but sometimes I think we feel like, uh, God has a, a maybe not so much abandoned us. We know he walks with us. We know he's lived with us. But we see the world getting bad. And we see, you know, some of maybe um, the, the things that are coming down on believers, not just in our country, but around the world. We see our brothers and sisters in Christ being imprisoned and tortured and all kinds of things for their faith. And you kind of wonder and you say, you know, God, where are you? And this verse reminds the singer that, number one, Jesus is coming back. He, that's, a, that's a fact but also how joyous that will be. That, that when Christ will come with shout of acclamation 
and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? There's nothing this world has that can even come close to the joy that will be had for a believer when Jesus returns. But the second truth that he's talking about is that we will all one day bow in adoration and worship him together. You know, when I was a kid, for fun, sometimes you'd sit in youth group and you'd sit around and someone would say, hey, you get to heaven, you have any questions you're going to ask God? And everybody's got their questions, you know, everything from did Adam and Eve have a belly button to um, what about the dinosaurs? Were you just playing some trick on us? Were they real? Did you really do the earth creation thing in seven literal days, or did you take several thousand years? You know, we all have, who killed JFK? I'd really like to know. You know, we, everyone has their questions they want to ask, but the, the truth is, the truth is when Jesus returns and takes us to be with him, all we will do is bow down and worship him. There will be no need to answer those questions. Those, those questions are irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. And that's what this song leads us to understand. That when he returns, joy will fill my heart, and then we, which is also another great thing it reminds us of, the reunion that will be had with us and our brothers and sisters in Christ that have went on before us, and the brothers and sisters in Christ we didn't even know we had, will all together bow down and worship him. And what will we worship him? Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. This song is an important hymn because of what it teaches us. Billy Graham once said this about this hymn. He said, The reason I like how great thou art is because it glorifies God. It turns the Christian's eyes toward God rather than upon themselves. I use it as often as possible because it is such a God-honoring song. You know, we sing for many reasons in our culture. We sing for many reasons when we come together to worship. But the truth is, true worship flows from a heart that understands and comprehends spiritual truths to where all we can do is praise. And when we truly understand God's greatness, His grandeur, and we truly grasp what he did for us in the gracious gift of Jesus, and we truly grasp the fact that he's going to come back and take us to be with him, where we'll be reunited with our other brothers and sisters in Christ that we have went on before us and those that we didn't even knew we had, and we will all together spend eternity praising God. When we truly grasp those, the only response is to sing and praise for how great God really is.